Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada. Today, Dr. Neufeld continues to lead us through the book of Romans, chapter 9 to 11, in his new series, The Progress of the Gospel. So let's continue as we hear a message entitled, How God Called His People, as we open our Bibles to Romans chapter 9, verses 6 to 11. Many people today will argue that if there is a God, that he seems to have made, well, all kinds of blunders. Like Woody Allen, who once said, if God exists, he's not evil. He's merely, he said, an underachiever. After all, the world is chaotic. Violence and corruption and evil are everywhere. Terrorists are blowing up innocent people. The world stands at the brink of war. Nations that don't seem to fear mutually assured destruction are gaining access to nuclear weapons. How can God be in control? And of course, there are all manner of personal issues that we deal with, including disease and want. And then, of course, the difficulties of getting the gospel to the whole world. How is God in control? But consider this. N.T. Wright said, It is we who have made blunders, and that to accuse God of them is sheer projection, like a drunkard stumbling into a ditch and accusing the roadmakers of incompetence. Imagine, says Dr. Wright, someone holding a map upside down, reading it completely improperly, arriving at a dead end, not having any clue where they are, and then throwing the map down and screaming obscenities at those stupid map makers. Look, they have it all wrong when they put this map together. There's no plan. There's no destination. There's only chaos. But God has both built a road and he has drawn up a map. And interestingly, most of humanity is lost in the ditch, not sure where they're going, and out of sorts with the road builder and the map maker. Indeed, that's what Romans 9 to 11 is all about. But as we saw when we introduced this series, Romans 9 to 11 is this amazing passage of Scripture that tells us how God is declaring the good news to the whole world. This section of Scripture is about the progress of the gospel. And as we saw when we looked at the first five verses of Romans 9 to 11, these three chapters concentrate on the Jews, God's chosen people. Someone not able to read the map might say, well, if the Jews are the chosen people, God seems to have failed with them. He sent them a Messiah, and they rejected his Messiah. And now look, if they are to be a lesson book to the world, well, what's the lesson? Nothing seems to make sense. Indeed, as you look at Israel as a nation today, you might come to that same conclusion, because today, most of them have rejected their own scripture and are secular Jews. But what follows in Romans 9 to 11 is a part of what some theologians have called God's strange work. Many of the descendants of Abraham throughout their long history have rejected God. Indeed, most did. And by the time of Jesus, most rejected him as their Messiah. And today, Israel as a nation is a secular nation. Many Jews are openly atheists. Others have spiritual longings. Some believe that the nation of Israel is the long-awaited Messiah, and so that they must fulfill their own destiny, save themselves, as it were. Others are religious and await another Messiah, rejecting Jesus as the one promised in the Bible. If you look at it, it seems as if the road is leading nowhere. Nothing seems to make sense. And in all of this, one can hear the statement, Did God fail? Was he unable to fulfill his promise? 
To that, Paul takes the upside-down, misread map, that is, the one of our own misunderstanding, and turns it around and shows us how to read the map, and suddenly we see where everything is going and why everything actually makes sense. We must listen to the road builder and the map maker. So let's read Romans 9, verses 6 to 8. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Now, I've made the point that in a unique and in an unrepeatable way, Israel was chosen by God to be God's lesson book for the nations. I meant by that that Israel is no better and no worse than the rest of us, no more or no less believing than the rest of us. Israel in the Bible is not a hero nor a villain. Indeed, God chose them to declare his gospel to the world. Also, God chose Israel to be holy, but her failure is an example that all nations should read and understand. We should apply Israel's example to ourselves as we both rejoice and weep with what God has done and what Israel is to be and the horrible pain of her failure. But in all of this, we are to understand that God never fails. So speaking about Israel, Paul lays before us two important premises. Here's premise number one. God never fails. That's what Paul means from the first part of verse 6 when he says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Now, when Paul says the word of God, what specifically is he referring to? Well, if we look at verses 4 and 5, we can see that Paul is referring to that part of the Word of God in which God made special promises to Israel. So, for instance, in Genesis 17, verse 7, listen to the promise God makes to Abraham. He says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. Well, did this promise fail, that God would forever be the God of Abraham and of his physical offspring? And Paul answers, no. And I say that God never fails as boldly and as loudly and as unashamedly as I possibly can, because I fear that some of us can erroneously think that God has indeed failed. See, what I mean is this, that some of us have a theology that goes something like this. We think God planned to save the world through the people of Israel, but that didn't work out so well, so now he's planning to do so through his church, which is plan B. Israel, having rejected their Messiah, left God with no other options but to now go to a second plan because plan A failed. But we've been holding the map upside down. Having misunderstood Israel's role in the history of redemption, we have made faulty assumptions. Israel was never a model of virtue. We owe it to ourselves to read the Old Testament where we read of Rachel's household gods and Israel's constant grumbling in the wilderness, her refusal to believe and to love idols, of the book of Judges and the constant cycle of rebellion, or of the sorrowful history of Israel during the time of the kings. We need to remember Isaiah's statement that only a remnant of Israel would be saved, as Stephen said before he was stoned to death, and that's recorded in Acts 7, verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Again, let me be clear. 
Israel is not worse than the rest of us. Rather, they are the world's lesson book. For the rest of us would have done the same if we had had the chance. Their history is a window into all of our souls. So back to premise number one. The rejection of the Jews of their Messiah is not God's failure, but it's rather on par with the history of Israel. And this does not make them worse than the rest of us, but rather shows all of us what we are like. We would have done exactly the same. Now to premise number two. In the midst of Israel's rejection of God, God has always maintained and kept his people. That's what Paul meant when he said, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, and then gives example of the choosing of Isaac. And the point is that Abraham had eight sons, and only one, Isaac, was chosen. Just because you descended from Abraham does not mean that you're the child of promise. Now, building on that reality, Paul points out that being a child of Abraham, according to the flesh, does not make you a child of promise. Indeed, it never did. To read the Old Testament in any other way, says Paul, is to hold your map upside down. Now, look at Romans 9, 6 again. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Do you see what's going on? Paul is now using the same term Israel in two different ways. First of all, there is Israel according to the flesh, that is, all the physical descendants of Abraham, as we have seen, who have been put on center stage by God and who are a lesson book to the nations. That's the role that God has for them to play. Now, there's another Israel, and I call this spiritual Israel. Isaiah called it the chosen remnant. What Paul is saying is that God has never failed spiritual Israel. He's made promises to be the God of spiritual Israel, and every one of those promises are fulfilled to this very day. Not one of them has failed. God has always kept all of his promises. I hope I'm helping you read your Bible correctly. Some of us have never understood that. We have assumed that there is no distinction between Israel according to the flesh and spiritual Israel, and because of that, we have not understood what God is doing today. I hope today's message is opening our eyes to the realities of Israel, the natural Israel, and now the spiritual Israel. Get ready to hear more next. I have to mention a very special ministry opportunity today. Dr. Neufeld, after sharing his one-week series on the Psalms, Finding Forgiveness, believes the need for understanding forgiveness is so essential, and there are so many walking through life carrying the burden of unforgiven sin, that we not only want to offer you one copy of this series on CD, but at your request, a second copy to offer someone you know that might need to know forgiveness is possible. That new joy is possible through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So take this special opportunity today by calling us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Neufeld. Okay, but who is spiritual Israel? Well, they include people like David but not people like Saul. They include prophets like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, but those false prophets like Hananiah and others were prophesying lies. They include kings like Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah, but not Ahab and his wife Jezebel. All of the people mentioned are Israel according to the flesh, but only a remnant is spiritual Israel. 
So natural Israel is chosen as a lesson book to the nations, but spiritual Israel is chosen as the inheritors of the promise. And that's exactly what the Old Testament teaches. So let's review. First, God never fails, at least in regard to the promises that he has made to spiritual Israel. And second, God has always kept his people and none of them were lost. And so what conclusions do we come to? Let me suggest three conclusions. Here's the first. When God chooses a people and makes them his own by forgiving their sins and giving them a new heart, this process has never been by birthright or by race. It has been by the promise. We'll say so much more of that as we go on. But for now, we notice that of Abraham's eight children, which includes Ishmael by his handmaiden, and the six sons of Keturah, who became his wife after the death of Sarah, only one, that is Isaac, was the child of promise. Now, from that, we form our second conclusion, and this second conclusion will cause some of us to stretch our understanding and really turn our maps right side up. The promise, which is the promise to save a people and make them his own, was never dependent on our character, our morality, or even our choice. Everything is dependent on God's choice. Are you ready to read something that some of us will have difficulty in swallowing? Well, here it is. Romans 9, 10, and 11. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. Now, I'm going to stop right there. Now, Paul carries this lesson book about Israel one step further. Abraham had eight kids, and God chose one, and that was Isaac. He became the inheritor of the promise. He became spiritual Israel. Now then, Isaac gets married to Rebekah. She gets pregnant, and lo and behold, she has twins. The oldest, or the firstborn, is named Esau. And how do we define his character? Well, he's impulsive. He has a tendency towards violence. He has no ability to see the value of God's blessing in his life. Now then, he has a younger brother. How will we define his character? Well, he's good and decent and knows the value of the blessings of God. No, that's not his character. Indeed, Jacob is deceitful. He's conniving. He knows how to lie with ease. He can sucker you out of your life savings before you can say con man. And he's completely self-centered. How'd you like to have two kids like that? Now, I know some of you are saying, yep, that's just like my family. Well, good for you. You have a biblical family, kind of, sort of. Okay, you've got to hear why Paul is telling us these things. Both Esau and Jacob had their own sins, and we would be hard-pressed to put one of them above the other. In fact, because we know that Jacob is the one who receives the blessing, God becomes his God, let me show you just how clearly his faults are displayed. Jacob, in Genesis 28, is on the run because Esau, his big, hairy, dim-witted, oversexed, pugilistic twin brother, wants to kill him. And why? because Jacob has lied and bamboozled their blind old father and stolen the inheritance. So to prevent a murder, and mainly that's his own, Jacob is on the run and he comes to a place called Luz. He has nowhere to stay and he falls asleep and I assume he's in an open field. He's put a rock under his head for a pillow and remember, he's a fugitive and he's so weary that he falls asleep in the open. And a dream opens up eternity to him. A massive ladder stands before him, stretching all the way into the heavens. Angels are going up and down on this massive ladder, and as he stares at this phenomenon and sees God himself standing above the ladder in majesty and in great glory. 
And God announces that he is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. Yeah, Isaac, that blind old guy, he's just swindled. This man's God is the altogether, all-knowing, all-powerful and glorious creator of all things. But there is more. God stands there in glory and announces to Jacob that Jacob's offspring will be like the dust of the earth. He shall inherit the land of Canaan, that all the families of the earth will be blessed through him and more, that God will never leave him. In effect, God will be Jacob's God. It's incredible. That's why Jacob called that place Bethel, house of God. So what does Jacob do? You ready for this? He wakes up and says, surely God is in this place, and I didn't know it. And he's afraid and says, how awesome is this place? But just when you think, wow, he's a changed man now, listen to Genesis 28, verse 21. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God amazing. He says, I've gotten a pretty good offer from God already, but what can I do to sweeten the pot? There are a lot of negotiations before I make a deal with God. As if this lying, deceitful, broke, renegade from justice has anything to negotiate with. It's incredible. Do you ever say, God, why did you choose that slimy guy? Why did you change his name from Jacob to Israel? and the name of a whole people after him. That's the question. But before we answer that question, Paul reminds us that God chose him when he was in the womb. Verse 11, before he had done anything, good or bad, or before Esau had done anything at all, God rejected him. And before Jacob had done anything, God accepted him. In other words, when God chooses a people, when he chooses individuals and makes them his own, when he puts his mark of ownership on them to be their God, he does so not on the basis of anything that they have done. See, I think this is so important. Some of us have elevated our own personal faith as if my choice to ask Christ to be my Savior was what made me a person that God could invest in. See, we're convinced that something good is in us, even if that good thing is as little as us wanting God in the first place. But in that, we seek to take credit for our salvation and refuse to say, God gets all the credit. And is this a big deal or is this just a minor misunderstanding? Well, in truth, God will not allow you or me or anyone else, for that matter, to take credit for our own salvation. He won't allow you to say, I made a superior choice to the one who didn't choose Christ. He won't allow you to say, I saw the value of trusting Christ where others didn't. I remember there's an old hymn, it's anonymous, and it's put this way. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. Thou didst reach forth thy hand and mine enfold. I walked and sank not on the storm-vexed sea. T'was not so much that I on thee took hold as thou, dear Lord, on me. See, Paul can write this way because, remember, that was his experience too. He was a persecutor of the church, and when Jesus met and called him, he was not seeking Christ at all. 
Indeed, all he was doing was breathing out hatred against the followers of Jesus. And in Galatians 1, 15 to 16, Paul himself would describe his own experience with these words. He would say, but when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, and was pleased to reveal his Son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And Paul wants to say, becoming a part of God's people is not dependent on my character nor my choice. Now look again at verses 10 and 11. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Now, in our next broadcast, we're going to say so much more about this, but here I want us to see what Paul is driving at. Not all Israel who are descended from Israel are Israel. And the great difference between the natural Israel and spiritual Israel has nothing to do with the righteous character of some over others, but it has everything in the world to do with the calling and the kindness of God. Wow, there's so much more to say, but if you're saved today, would you marvel at the mercy of God who called a reprobate like you and I? John, this is obviously a packed portion of Scripture, but I want to go to a question that many people ask, and you didn't necessarily refer to it, but the whole idea of when, uh, when, when, when the Scripture says that God hated Esau and loved Jacob, what's that all about? Yeah, that's a really good question because we should not read that to say that God does not love all people because clearly he does. The context is always everything. So how is Paul using the word hate and love in that context? And and the context seems to indicate that hate means he has rejected him as the child of his promise. And I think we should read hate as a synonym for rejected. And in that sense, I think it makes sense. Now, of course, that may introduce a whole bunch of other questions as well. But I think for now, Ben, that's about as good we can do. Great. Thanks so much. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Okay, this can be an awkward topic for many, and one for most of us is seldom discussed at all. And it's a little bit awkward for me to bring up, but I think it's important enough to take the risk. You see, I believe that God's people have an important responsibility to not just be good, but be great stewards of every resource God has blessed them with. So here I go. If the question of your estate has never been discussed, or or if you haven't had the opportunity to do so confidentially, with a qualified Christian estate planner you can trust, then I want to recommend to you Advisors with Purpose. This is a nonprofit group whose intention is to ensure that your estate is maximized and customized to your expressed wishes. This group is a third-party Christian advisory who have performed this service for thousands across Canada. And it's a service they are now offering to our Back to the Bible Canada audience for free. No cost, no obligation, completely confidential. So as important as this is, today is a great day to call advisors and sign up for one of their phone seminars this October. To learn more, call Advisors with Purpose at 1-866-336-3700. 
1-866-336-3315. That's 1-866-336-3315. Or check out their website at advisorswithpurpose.ca.